Hey, it's Nancy. I want to take a minute to introduce you to another great show from the Curious Cast Podcast Network. It's called 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre. It was one of the worst shooting sprees in Canada's modern history, and it left us with far more questions than answers. Join Sarah Ritchie from Global News Halifax as she takes you through this massacre hour by hour. She tries to piece together what happened and looks at what could or should have been done to prevent this tragedy. April 19th, 11 a.m., Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Jesse Thomas was in a hurry. As the reporter on duty for Global News in Halifax on a Sunday morning, he had started his day with a call he didn't expect, to chase down what felt like a huge story, an active shooter on the loose in rural Nova Scotia. As he drove north from Halifax at around that time, he could see police cars along the highway. There was a helicopter overhead. Tweets from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police told him the gunman was near the town of Brookfield, about an hour outside the city. But then... I started seeing uh, just a stream of officers, some in marked cruisers, un in, uh, uh, unmarked cars, flying at me. Um, maybe 15, 20 cars. It felt like, uh, you know, the Daytona 500. They were just whipping by. He turned his vehicle around followed the line of police cars to a gas station he had passed a few minutes before. I made my way back to that truck stop, and that's when uh, all the police officers had congregated on there. It seemed like, you know, probably 50 cars. The helicopter landed nearby. DNR chopper, DNR helicopter from RCMP command post, two copy. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Roger, we have reports of the suspect down at the Enfield Big Stop off of uh, exit 11, bound 102. At that point, one of the officers that was setting up a barricade, I asked, did you guys catch him? And he just shook his head and then said yes. I'm Sarah Ritchie. I'm a global news reporter and anchor in Halifax. And on that cold, clear Sunday, April morning, I woke up to those same RCMP tweets that said a manhunt was underway. I texted my boss and offered to come in on my day off. I was just about to head to the station when I heard the shooter had been caught. No one knew this at the time, but we were witnessing the end of one of the deadliest shooting sprees in Canada's modern history. At the center of the mayhem was a 51-year-old denturist with a violent past who had just spent hours on the run with a cache of illegal weapons, murdering at will. The killing spree spanned more than 150 kilometers in all and left 22 innocent people dead at 16 different crime scenes. The most astonishing part of how it ended is that Despite all of the police resources dedicated to the pursuit, it all came down to an unexpected encounter. While he's at the gas pumps, one of our tactical resources came to the gas station to refuel the vehicle. When the officer exited the vehicle, there was an encounter 
and the gunman was shot and killed by police at 11.26 in the morning. That's how it ended. But to understand how this happened, how a shooter was able to terrorize a quiet coastal community and then take that terror on the road for as long as he did, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go through it hour by hour. So that's what we're going to do on this podcast. We'll try to piece together what happened and we'll ask what could or should have been done to prevent this tragedy. We're also going to introduce you to every one of the 22 people who were lost. This is 13 hours inside the Nova Scotia massacre. Episode one, a shattered quiet. Before I take you through that first hour, I wanna tell you about what life is like here in Nova Scotia. Around here, I'm what's known as a come from away. You've probably heard of the term because of the Tony award-winning musical set in Newfoundland. It's sort of affectionate, but also a reminder that I won't ever be from Nova Scotia. You see, I was born and raised more than 4,000 kilometers away in a tiny town in the middle of the prairies surrounded by wheat fields. I moved to the Maritimes after university. I left home with a stern warning from my mom to only stay for five years and not to put down any roots. I've failed on both accounts. Like so many people who come here, I've fallen in love with this place. You should know that Nova Scotians and Maritimers really take pride in being friendly and welcoming. I live in the capital, Halifax, and although there are about 430,000 people here, it's the kind of place where, honestly, I'm surprised if I don't run into somebody I know when I go out. Another half a million Nova Scotians live spread out in smaller communities like the one you'll be hearing about in this episode. These are mostly clustered along the 13,000 kilometers of coastline. And why not? Nova Scotia is stunningly beautiful. A hidden gem, a well-kept secret that for the most part, locals don't really mind keeping. The unique shores of the Bay of Fundy have been shaped by the power of the highest tides in the world. You won't find white sandy beaches on this coast, and the water's pretty much always cold. There are jagged cliffs, carved out with caves and surrounded by mudflats. Millions of years of crashing waves have exposed fossils of prehistoric animals that once called this place home. This power refuses to be harnessed. Visitors fall in love with this ever-changing coastline, where you can actually see the passage of time in the rise and fall of the tide. What I'm trying to say is Nova Scotia is an unlikely setting for a story like this especially the small rural communities on the shores of the Bay of Fundy. There's a sense of trust here. I'm not saying that people don't lock their doors, but I've been to places that operate on the honor system. Leave cash, take what you paid for. It's in one of these quiet towns that this story begins, a place I hadn't even heard of before April. port to get there from Halifax, you drive north on the Trans-Canada Highway for about an hour, and then it's about half an hour's drive west, following the coast. Lisa and Lori George own a slice of the shoreline in Highland Village, 
which is right next to Portapic. When I visited months after the tragedy, the tide was out, the sky was gray and threatening rain. Lisa welcomed me into her yard. Her long blonde hair blew in the breeze and she was optimistically wearing a sundress in spite of the clouds. She was easygoing, warm, definitely a people person. Oh, yeah, easily. Like you just come down along, you know? As we chatted and got set up, it started to pour. Lisa's husband, Lori, appeared out of nowhere and set up a tent. That's what they do, taking care of others. You could hear the wind in the tent as we talked about the place that Lisa calls home. Like, it's all a huge community, even even though we're divided into sections, uh, we all still take care of each other from one end, like from Great Village right through to Bass River, right? So it's kind of like a huge community, just divided. Driving here, I had noticed that too, that if it wasn't for the brightly painted signs welcoming me to each community, I'd probably have trouble telling where those divisions lie, following the highway west from Great Village to Highland Village to Portapic to Bass River. There's a little more of a downtown in Great Village, a gas station, a restaurant, some antique shops. But once you pass that, it's a long stretch of highway to Portapic, where the white lines are painted at the very edge of the asphalt, and the trees are sometimes right up to the shoulder. In between homes and farm fields, you can see glimpses of the bay beyond. I can sit at my kitchen table and I watch the tide come in. Um, it's very calming. You know, uh, we usually have chairs that uh, we have set down here. Um, as you can tell, though, we chose to put a fence up now along the edge. Uh, we always had it kind of fenced in all the way around, but now we've put one up uh, along the edge here. But still, it doesn't obstruct my view of watching the calmness, you know. And sometimes it's rough, like our life is rough, and then calms down. Lisa has lived around here most of her life. I wouldn't have raised my kids anywhere else. They learned to be very uh, caring and care about the neighbors that are beside them. All the kids that grew up here, uh, my daughter's 31, and so all those kids are now growing up and having families. And my son, who's 26, same thing. His friends still stop in here with their new babies. And because you stay connected. So many people have said that what drew them to this area is the quiet, that this was a peaceful place, which is why what happened on April 18th is so shocking. Thanks for listening to this preview of 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre. To hear the full episode, search for 13 Hours on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure you subscribe to 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre so you never miss an episode.